what we saw in the Supreme Court is an absolute clash of two notions of law. The judges did not cite a single relevant precedent. It is wrong in law. Key to English exceptionalism is this powerful notion of identity and the right to self-government. As if Parliament continues as it is now, it will disappear. All revolutions replicate the worst features of the government they bring down. Hello and welcome to another episode of Room for Thought. My guest today is undoubtedly one of Britain's favourite historians, perhaps Britain's best-known historian, uh, David Starkey. Thank you for, for coming on. Overkind. <laughs> well, you're not just a historian, you are also a distinguished TV presenter, you're a commentator, you've been on Question Time, Newsnight, The Moral Maze, you've um, done a lot of broadcasting on not just history but, but current affairs topics. And even on music, and music and monarchy. I suppose, dare we use that sort of neo-French term, if we can use dirty words so early in the programme, I'm a public intellectual. A public intellectual? Oh, God, terrible phrase. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you really have made your professional reputation as a historian of the Tudors. Mm. And I, I was preparing for this programme and I, I looked at a very lengthy list of books you've written about the Tudors. And learned articles. And, and learned articles. And I, I suddenly thought to myself, hang on, you studied a period in our past of tremendous upheaval. You studied a period when the ruling establishment was trying to redefine their relationship with Europe. We were led by a queen who was desperately trying to make sure we weren't absorbed into a sort of Habsburg blob. And then, of course, there was Henry VIII who, who kind of did a Brexit. Do you think I'm slightly... We're in 1529. Do you think we're in 1529? Well, it's a moot point whether or not Dominic Cummings is Thomas Cromwell Rudabibus. <laughs> we shall find out. He'll probably get his head cut off, but whether he will do the Well, he's certainly things, not Cardinal Wolsey. I mean, yeah, I think he believes That is Brexit. precisely the point. Oliver Robin, Ollie Robbins was No, no, the, the, real, the, real, the real Cardinal Wolsey was Theresa May, if you remember, with a fondness for beads and for wearing uh, scarlet. Uh, Plus, the parallels really are extraordinary. The parallels, and quite seriously, are very extraordinary. Um, for two years, when Henry VIII first decides in 1527, and again, talking about serious history, one of the things that I've always tried to do in my television history is to apply the same standards of position, accuracy, and sources that I do in my real history. Uh -huh. Too much television history is written by directors, You've been in television, you know, and it's really Wikipedia. It's Wikipedia with somebody glitzing perhaps with long blonde hair in front, mentioning no names. Um, now, that I think is bad. Let's go back and just look at this parallel again. And I can prove the exact day on which Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, which kicks it all off, agree to marry. In some ways, it's an absolutely arbitrary act. It's very much like the referendum. It's something that sort of comes from air. And then there are these enormous consequences. But do, just, just one second, and the, because it's really, really worth trying to pursue the analogy a little further. And then what happens is, Henry turns to his minister, Wolsey. And you know, he's exactly like Theresa May. He is a powerful remainer. He doesn't really want to leave Rome, but he's got to pretend to, otherwise he can't remain in office. And he then proceeds at enormous cost 
extravagant amounts of money, spending reputation, spending energy, negotiating with Rome on Rome's terms. What? The parallel is just exact. And Rome didn't take him seriously. And, and precisely, and then it all falls to pieces, very much like the end of the May Premiership, uh, with the trial of Henry's divorce uh, at Blackfriars in the summer of 1529, and at which point Henry, and this is where the parallels break down, applies intelligence, serious research, no, the government could try that. They've not tried it. I mean, it would be utterly, wouldn't it? It would be an astonishing experiment. I mean, what again we forget, and it's something that is really seriously shocking. We think of the Reformation, Henry VIII's Reformation, as bloody. It's a wonderful story. It might have been successful. It's, you know, it's better than any fiction. Six wives of Henry VIII, it knocks spots off Bluebeard. But do you know how Henry actually goes about getting his Brexit? He reforms the royal library. He creates a think tank. He researches. He comes up with arguments, A, to justify the fact that the, a bit like cases before the Supreme Court, uh, that the verdict uh, of Rome was wrong, that, that the idea that Rome could actually dispense with, his marriage, dispense with his marriage was wrong. And then he comes up with an even more novel idea, the argument that England had always been independent. From Rome. So you come up with two huge, powerful ideas. And with all the brutality of the government from that point, it's driven by ideas. Mm -hmm. Remember Keynes, one of the greatest passages in Keynes about even practical politicians, as you once were, are ruled by the ideas of defunct economists. Add to that defunct historians, defunct theologians. But it's ideas. That's what drives them. I I, I think this is absolutely fascinating. I mean, um, I was going to make the glib point that, you know, if Boris wanted to emulate Henry VIII, it's less to do with having six wives and more to do with... Six mistresses. <laughs> he should be making serious... serious seems, dare I say, he seems to be far but, better at it than Henry but, VIII. But on a, on, a, on a less glib note, there's, there's, there's something you said back there that slightly jarred. You explained that first Brexit under the Tudors, almost as an accident arising out of the actions of courtiers, Anne Boleyn agreeing to marry him. I was watching a BBC programme the other day about David Cameron, called The Cameron Years, and it was explaining Brexit almost as though it was a tussle amongst courtiers. And I, I remember watching it and thinking, no, they're missing the point. I think the reason why this second Brexit happened isn't because of a tussle within the Tory party, it's because there's a profound difference of opinion amongst Britain of the people. The Britain of the elites tend to be Europhile. The Britain of the people has never reconciled itself. Do you know what? It's exactly the same in the 16th century. Foreigners were loved by the upper class. When there were the great riots, the evil May Day riots in London in the late teens of the 16th century, and the uh, masses you know, lay into the foreign merchants, the apprentices duff them up, they behave just like football hooligans. <laughs> and the upper class are sympathetic. They hang these rogues that have you know, ventured to attack the, the, their the, 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 the elites have always been in this country fundamentally Francophile. I mean, if you look at the English Civil War, the parliamentarian side used the language of overthrowing the Norman yoke. There was still this folk memory, it may have been an invented memory, but there's this it was completely invented. But again, let's, let's just tease out that idea, because it's one worth exploring. First of all, why is there this sense of the powerful notion of self-government, 
difference from Europe, English exception. It's English. It's English. It's not Scottish. There's no accident that England and Scotland voted differently in the referendum. They have two different reformations. The formative moment of, as it were, national identity in Scotland is a completely typical European reformation. So you're Dominate, talking about sorry, English exceptions. I'm, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about the fact that in Scotland, let's just get the Scots right, because we, we need to treat them seriously. And mm -hmm. um, they're a separate people, and they have a separate history, which happened to come together through the melding effects of empire and Protestantism for two or three hundred years, and is now showing every sign diverging. I regret, but I think that is likely to happen. But the Scottish Reformation with Knox is a completely typical European Reformation. It deploys the typical ideas of Swiss Presbyterianism, of Swiss theology. It takes the usual form of a rebellion against the Catholic elite. There's an awful lot of iconoclasm from below. The English Reformation is completely different. It's controlled by the government. It's top-down. It defines, first of all, that England is different and peculiar and separate. And that's enormously important. But let's just go back to look at the situation uh, in 1527. I think the parallels with Cameron are even closer. Whilst you and I would agree on the idea of English exceptionalism, of the fundamental visceral hesitation about the EU, uh, the fact is, uh, if, you, if you remember, going right back to the debates of the Heath government, the then Lord Chancellor said, we are making a terrible mistake in not being frank about the loss of sovereignty. But they didn't dare, they didn't dare to say it. Um, what I think is important to realise, there is then a twofold process. Around Cameron, it was the action of courtiers. It was done for narrow considerations, wholly misconceived as it turned out, and conducted extraordinarily badly for short-term policy. But there were bigger issues. I think similarly, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, Henry quite simply was driven by his prick, and it's stupid to pretend anything else. On the other hand, there were always fundamental senses, again, of English difference. The persistence of arguments with the papacy, the existence of legislation, which, by the way, was very quietly repealed after we joined the European Union, making it illegal to uh, import uh, papal, uh, papal authority, papal bulls, without royal provision, the statutes of provisors and primarily. Um, in the same way, of course, we also had to repeal the, uh, the acts of supremacy, uh, the act in restraint of appeals and everything else, because the common theme of them all is no foreign power has a right to do anything in England. Queen Elizabeth, you mentioned her, the great speech at Tilbury, yes. you know, I have the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England too, and think foul scorn that Philip of Spain or any foreign prince, it's that, it's that. So there is that, there is that big issue. Uh, you can also see something else, which is very, very modern. It's a clash of rival elites. There are rival elites, there are rival elites now. There are people like you and me who are at least equally. I, I get rather irritated when uh, leavers are written off as these you know, moronic knuckle draggers. I can supply enough degrees on my own person to deal with an average jury of Remainers, right? Uh, and they're rather good degrees. Um, so I get very cross about that. But the, the lead up to the Reformation is essentially it's a clash of elites. You've got two ruling elites. It surprised you not that one of them is the lawyers, the common lawyers. Yes. 
and then the other lot are the church lawyers. And between those two elites, there is visceral hatred. And the reign of Henry VIII began, and I'm just doing again, we're talking about serious academic work, I'm just working on two things at the moment. The royal finances at the end of Henry VII's reign, and the rise of those notorious lawyers, Epsom and Dudley. Remember, the idea that lawyers protect you against the king is an invention of the 17th century. It's something we can come on to. Um, whereas uh, the, their opponents are the churchmen, who are Henry VII's father confessor and the father confessor of his mother, Lady Margaret Beaufort, who is John Fisher. And between those two groups, there is internecine warfare and over the deathbed, but only over the deathbed, when Henry VII sees the gates of hell opening before him because of his financial policies, he swings to the churchmen and destroys the lawyers. And I think so much of what happens in Henry's reign is an act of vengeance by the lawyers against the church. Thomas Cromwell manifestly sees himself as one of those two ministers who was destroyed in 1509, Edmund Dudley. He manifestly sees himself as Edmund Dudley revived. It's a new ascendancy, in effect. You create a new governing class. Yeah. The, the, in the same way, we've seen the emergence of a new governing class in England since the 1960s. <laughs> since the 1960s. Since, since the ref referendum in this country, I become very aware that the question of what I regarded as home rule has morphed into one of who rules at home. I notice well-heeled, rich lawyers going to the courts, aided and abetted by former prime ministers, trying to shore up a certain set of arrangements, and you see a sort of a, a, a new a new force in the land that is no longer deferential to, to, to that old way of doing things. No, um, absolutely not. On the contrary, on the contrary, it is actively contemptuous of it. I mean, one of the things we've got to understand is that from the left, and not from the extreme left, but also from the Blairite left, there has been a deliberate attempt at delegitimating English history. Yes. There are two distinct traditions in England. One of them, and again, all of these things really begin in the 16th century. I mean, there are hints earlier on, but they begin in the 16th century. Our culture is reinvented then by that extraordinary clash between the classical world, the world of Greek and Latin, that comes in and the new vehicle. Remember, the 16th century is also like ours. It's an age of media revolution. Printing is still much bigger in its effect than anything on the internet. Um, so you get this extraordinary new creation of a culture which is both medieval and 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 the ancient world, except that the ancient world is in many ways much more modern than if, 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 if you get that. And you get this profound tension, but it's also the creation of a new governing class. This is what the Reformation is really about. What happens is the old governing class, and we forget this, England in the Middle Ages, there are two groups. There are the thugs who are the title and nobility many of whom can barely write their names. Many who are descendants of the Conqueror. And they are the, they are the descendants of the thugs who came over with William the Conqueror, uh, aided by uh, you know, locally successful thugs uh, who've joined them uh, and probably outfunded them, uh, if we can coin a verb. And, but, and the, but the real ruling group, those who actually administer, run the things, are churchmen, 
all the great offices of state. Yeah, you can add up and count the taxes and Absolutely. read the law. Well, not quite. Um, the only office, and this again is one of the peculiarities of England, the only medieval office that is held high office of state, like Lord this, is the only office that's held by a layman always is that of the Lord Treasurer. That is a peculiarity of England. But the, the Lord Chancellor, the Lord Privy Seal, the, the Lord President of the Council, the Secretary, they're all churchmen until the Reformation. This is one of the dissolution monasteries, it says. Definitely. Because Henry is saying to this parasitic elite, get Well, out. I don't know they're parasitic or not. They're a different elite. And what you do is you then erect a new class on them. And it's new in two ways. Obviously, they're endowed indirectly with the wealth of the monasteries. And so you see Woburn Abbey turned into the seat of the Duke of Bedford. Uh, but the other thing that's peculiar about them, and it's very unusual in European terms, they are educated. They go to Oxford and Cambridge. And you create a new sort of aristocracy, a new sort of nobility, a new sort of gentry, which is both, you know, it's this wonderful thing, it's both in the Latin, it's both armata, it's armed weapons, that's why you have a coat of arms, and the symbol of a gentleman is a sword, but it's also togata, it is draped like Cicero, and you read Latin, and you know law, and you appreciate Shakespeare, and one of them may actually have written it. So authority and seems to be being modelled on something bigger than just might. Much, much bigger. It's modelled on ideas of right. And what, is, and what is really strange, legitimacy, it's a new sort of legitimacy. It's replacing a nobility of, of strength with a nobility of intelligence. And the key figure, you mentioned Elizabeth, I've been sort of aping her, the key figure is Elizabeth's first minister, William Sisson. He is the first example of this. And of course, the family that he founds continues to exemplify that. You know, it, the Sissels, at least the, the Salisbury branch, churn out prime ministers. But we talk about English exceptionalism and we talk about legitimacy. At the heart of all of this, I think, is this notion of parliamentary sovereignty. And it's very, very relevant to today. Ooh, let's, let's tease that out. I think the way parliamentary sovereignty is being deployed at the moment is deliberately anti-democratic. Well, I, I had understood parliamentary sovereignty to be shorthand for sovereignty of the people. No, it's not. Um, and that's why the Supreme Court made the monstrous, I think, monstrous and law-deforming definition of it that it did uh, yesterday. Let's just go back there. Uh, I think the key to English exceptionalism is this powerful notion of identity and the right to self-government. Doing it yourself. Um, there is an extraordinary book written by one of, I think, the most brilliant minds at Cambridge had a profound influence on me, a man called Alan McFarlane, who called The Origins of English Individualism. And it's a remarkable book. He is a PhD uh, both in history and anthropology, and it really shows. And what he argues is that the English from Anglo-Saxon times onwards have been different. We have different family structures. We don't have extended families. Uh, the fact that we are so individualistic means that you require various forms of law to arbitrate it and all the rest of it. And you establish this fundamental tradition going right back to Magna Carta and beyond of self-government. And we are the only empire that spawned parallel self-governing dominions. It is written Australia, into, it is written into the genes after the catastrophe of America. Which remember, America, the, America, the, the reason the Americans got away with it were two things. 
One was, of course, they allied with the most nasty absolutist monarchy in Europe, the French, which I am delighted to say bankrupted themselves. Uh, the, the reason for the French Revolution is that the French were stupid enough to support the American revolutionaries. And, and, and as Thomas Paine and others discovered, and Thomas Paine, they weren't such great allies. They were, they were deadly dangerous. But my favourite illustrate. I'm always fond of good stories. Um, uh, in the, in the, at the height of the American War of Independence, when the French temporarily gained control of the sea, just outside my American front door, uh, mm -hmm. in, in the Chesapeake Bay, which leads to Yorktown and all the rest of it, Marie Antoinette was swanning round Versailles with an American ship woven into her hairstyle, going round, Où sont mes chers républicains? She found where her dear Republicans were very soon after she that. lost her head over. And it served her absolutely right. So, the American, American, remember, the reason they get away with it is the French on the one hand, but also so much support at home. You know, the great future conservatives like Burke passionately support the American right to self-government. And it's because we go so badly wrong in America that we get it right thereafter. One of the documents nobody ever looks at is the Durham Report uh, on the government of Canada, which lays down the rule the sensible thing is to head off rebellion before it happens by deliberately going down the route of semi-self-governing status and retaining imperial control over defence and foreign policy but conceding very, very quickly government. I mean, uh, the whole point about the War of Australian Independence or Canadian War of Independence is there American was independence. There was Austra one. Australia didn't. <laughs> exactly. exactly. There isn't one. Uh, and do you know what? Australia actually has the first socialist government in, in the empire, uh, in South Australia. And do you know what? You will love this, Douglas. Uh, part of the monument of this first socialist government is a grandiose classical railway station in Adelaide, you know, a, a, bit, a, bit, a, bit, a bit very Hitlerian. Uh, would you care to guess what this monument to the first socialist paradise is now? A government office. A casino. Poetic <laughs> <laughs> justice. How, how the mighty are. It's a bit like the treatment of Marie Antoinette on the guillotine. Serve it right. Yes. Um, I, can I put forward a countervailing mm. argument, if only so that you can demolish it with your erudite um, uh, 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 counterpoint? But I've had a long series of discussions over the years with my good friend Daniel Hannan, and he's been a great advocate of this idea of Anglosphere exceptions. Mm -hmm. But I can't help noticing that there are other countries that also have some of these constraints on their powerful. Take, for example, the Venetian Republic. The Venetian Republic, admittedly, it doesn't spawn these offshoots as successfully as we do. But it's an extraordinary success story in its own right. The Venetian Republic gets to a point where it has a constitutional series of constraints. It doesn't import a Dutch monarch to constrain the power of the king. It has a a non-hereditary monarch appointed for life. It, it, it is rather like the Whig oligarchy in that it, it constrains the sort of rapacious tendency of, of the powerful. And just at the point where I was starting to believe that you know, Magna Carta was the be-all and the end-all, I, I came across this extraordinary fact that actually the Magna Carta that we got our king to sign echoed to an extraordinary degree what the Venetians got their doge to sign. Every time there was a new doge, they got the doge to sign what was in effect a Magna Carta. So much so that I wonder if we didn't import the idea of Magna Carta from, from Venice. It's purely speculative. But I, I just wonder, 
I think, are there, are there I think the, answer, the answer is no, 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 no. Um, remember, Venice does indeed create an aristocratic republic with a highly narrow governing elite that enforces conformity by torture by the, by the Council of Ten. By after, ah, but that comes in after uh, 1290. But, but, yeah, but, but, but sorry, that's for more than half the life of the Venetian Republic. Yeah. Um, the Venetian Republic also, uh, for the last three or four hundred years of its life, is merely Europe's casino, brothel and entertainment. Well, no, 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 this is important. It freezes, it becomes frigid, it cannot develop. Um, the, what is remarkable about the institutions of England is that they constantly grow. They are capable of adaptation. The uni Remember, again, the whole notion of representative government uh, is common to almost all, this is a fundamental point, and this addresses now all the arguments we're having about Parliament. The notion of representative assemblies and forms of limited government is common to every European state, wrong word, of whatever size for the whole of the Middle Ages. Because influenced by canon law, there is the doctrine that which touches everybody should be decided by everybody. So virtually every European state has forms of representative assemblies. There are the Estates General of France, there are the, uh, the States General of Holland, there is the Diet of Poland, there is an unbelievably elaborate structure of representatives along with the quasi-magna carta. A functional court is, that is infinitely powerful in, there's no such thing as Spain, in the Kingdom of Aragon um, and, and again uh, in Hungary. The point of all of these is they disappear. And do you know why they disappear? They disappear because if Parliament continues as it is now, it will disappear. If it just turns into a talking shop, a theatre of vanity, an opportunity for division and an obstacle to good government, it will that is right. So well, you, you, said, all the all these assemblies that I've been talking about. Do you know what? It was a, much because they stood on their dignities so much. The Estates General uh, in France is constantly fussing. It is hopeless. Um, it can't take decisions. It won't take decisions. The king has to do it for him. The extreme example uh, are the Estates General in Holland, where, es where every single decision had to be referred back to the constituent assemblies of each of the provinces. Yeah. Yeah. In Poland, the Diet, every member of it had a veto. So, sorry, this is why they go. You see, we've gone the role of Parliament completely wrong. The reason that Parliament survives in England is not because it resists the King, it's because it cooperates with the King. And the Kings who give Parliament huge powers are not the weak Kings, they are the powerful Kings. This is, we were asking about good history. This is where our history has gone completely wrong. Because of Marxist fantasies, and, and you know, the rubbish of, 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 of Hobbesbaum and, and the Oxford Communists, the Oxford Communists, and uh, Christopher Hill and whatever, um, there has been this attachment to the 17th century. The 17th century is unique as a moment of breakdown. And remember, everybody says, oh, Parliament, look outside here, the buildings of Parliament. Outside there is Oliver Cromwell. Everybody says Parliament won the Civil War. No, it didn't. A bloody military dictatorship. And do you know what? Parliament was 
abolished almost as soon as the king was beheaded. And Cromwell, as somebody should do with Mr. Burko, marches in there with the guards and, you know, points. They didn't yet have bayonets. It's a wonderful quote where he says, you sat here long enough. Jeffrey Cox sounded like that. In the name of God, go. Jeffrey Cox says, it's a dead parliament. But you know what? It's a dead parliament for exactly the same reason. But if, no, just a minute. The parallel... The parallels are just extraordinary. Why is it still sitting there, the Fixed Term Parliament Act? Do you know what? That's why Cromwell had to get rid of the Parliament. It passed in 1641 a Fixed Term Parliament Act. It passed an act that Parliament couldn't be dissolved except with its own consent. And it's the stupidity of Cameron. It's the stupidity of particularly the Lib Dems, they are the ones who are directly responsible for it, that puts this 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 sort of steel band round our constitution. And Geoffrey Cox was wrong. Parliament unfortunately is not dead. Do people realise France is actually ruled by decree? By a technocracy. Uh, well, but, you, but it's a technocracy em, uh, embedded in an elective monarch with a seven-year term mm -hmm. who lives in a palace. Do you know every French minister has a gentleman usher in a white tie marching in front of him? Monsieur le ministre, you know, bang, bang, bang. I wonder what just the just, report just, well, they, they, that's, It happens under Napoleon. Mm -hmm. Napoleon merely reproduces the most, as it were, aggressive features of Ancien Régime France. And in Starkey's Law of Revolutions is that all revolutions replicate the worst features of the government they bring down. Mao is just another mad emperor. Putin is a peculiarly nauseous star. Erdogan is certainly re recreating bits of the Ottoman. He, he's trying to be an Ottoman. He, he, he says it's a... Literally, 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 literally. What I find really quite ominous about some of what you just said is this idea that actually our parliament, which I would say is key to English exceptionalism, is on the verge of ending up as just another European assembly. Absolutely. And the Dutch in particular, the Dutch have this glorious moment when they, they break away, they have their revolution, they overthrow the Habsburgs. And Only they... in one bit of the Netherlands. Remember, the price, the price of that is, they, we, again, we get this all wrong. The north of the Netherlands, which is what we call Holland, was a place of absolutely no importance in the Middle Ages. The great centres of mercantile activity, the great centres of wealth, the great centres of Protestantism were all in the south. They were Gantwerp, Antwerp, they, they were Antwerp, uh, and, uh, they were Bruges and whatever. They are conquered by Spain. And Protestantism is destroyed at the point of the sword. And you get the mass migration, and you and you get mass migration. And the reason that it works is that the Spanish are able to confiscate the goods of exiles. The reason why Protestantism <laughs> survives Mary's reign in England is the English Parliament will not confiscate the estates of Protestant exiles, which means you have this complete group available to come back under Elizabeth and, and to take over. But, I mean, let's just go back. What we, we've now got an iron rule here, Douglas, and I think it's a really important one. If you look at the powers of Parliament, the powers of Parliament over money, these are granted by the immensely powerful medieval kings, Edward I and Edward III. Why? Because they find it's easier to raise tax that way. It's nice. You know, people pay up if you ask them. 
And you say, and you know, dare I say it, unlike the Tory government, give an honest explanation of why you know why you need to do something. Um, and and this money to invade France, of course, sock France, Scots, it's wildly popular. Uh, sock, as long as you're winning, it's tremendously popular. Sock the Welsh. I uh, see really it's a bit like Five Nations rugby or whatever it is. Um, it's very, very, it's actually the groups are identical, uh, only oh, Irish as well, uh, except we never get really round to sorting them out. With, disastrous consequences. Um, uh, and, and then similarly, the concept of parliamentary sovereignty itself is really invented by Henry VIII. It's invented by Henry VIII. It's got nothing to do with democracy. Parliament is not democratic. It's to give him the foundations to act autonomously from Europe. It's to give him the foundation of national sovereignty. Parliamentary sovereignty is indistinguishable from national sovereignty which is why this notion of, as it were, an empire that fragments itself into separate sovereign states, the core of all of them is their parliament. Would Henry VIII have been familiar with, with Janus? Or, or have I got the chronology? I know uh, the chronology is absolutely right. He was, and he utterly disapproved of him, because of course he's a heretic. Um, and Henry but, sees himself as completely orthodox. Um, remember, Henry, Henry... Maybe maybe if Huss had Henry, framed his argument in terms of national identity, he may have been a bit more... Oh, well, I mean, the, the, the clearly, uh, the only people who at that stage actually fully support Henry's argument about national identity are those who hate Rome. Um, and this, of course, is one of the... We were talking about the, 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 the reform of the, the, the Royal Library. I mean, it's a lovely story. Before that point, the Royal Library of the Middle Ages is just like the Royal Library now. Lots of lovely books with, with gold and silk on them that nobody ever reads, you know. And, and what Henry does, he turns it into a real working library with extraordinarily advanced things like catalogue numbers uh, in, in Arabic numbers and cross really. Uh, and, but he comes up with this idea of... England as a unique, separate nation. You invent the idea of English as a great language. All the, all the things that we associate with Elizabethan England actually happen under Henry VIII. And again, under Henry, there's exactly the debate that we began talking about, but didn't finish, that the history of England is the authentic history of proper self-government of a responsible, self-governing national community. The argument against it, of course, is Thomas More's utopia, that human societies are naturally wicked and are conspiracies against the poor, and you can deduce nothing from history. In other words, Thomas More is a proto-communist. Mm -hmm. Thomas, Thomas More is the one who, in the interest of Catholic universalism, attacks the notion of the fact that you can learn from your own history. He also implies there can be no progress. Well, no, I'm not sure. No, no, I think Thomas More did believe in a sort of progress. I mean, the, uh, he, he certainly, uh, progress, progress as such is really invented in the 19th century. You know, that's when, when the concept uh, actually properly, properly becomes entrenched and becomes uh, a mere commonplace. But, but more, more early on is a passionate believer in reform. Um, he and Erasmus believe that it is possible to replace a society based on war by one that's based on peace, that you can actually attack false values and replace them with true values, and you can do it essentially through Christian evangelism. More to start off with is a radical. I mean, this is, the, but, but the paradox about More is he's fundamentally an anti-nationalist. More believes that Christianity has to be universal. 
This is what the great speech of the trial is. He's a Remainer. Again, he's, he's a Remainer. He's a Catholic Remainer. And the speech is wonderful. I mean, the, 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 the speech when he finally, you know, after having um, equivocated, i.e. lied, about what his real views were when he's condemned, he comes absolutely clean. And he says that the Act of Parliament that he's tried under, that requires him to swear an oath to the king as head of the church, he just says, frankly, like the Supreme Court has done, it is illegal. And he's the greatest lawyer of the day. And then do you know how he presents the argument? He says, Parliament has just declared the king head of the church. Parliament can't declare the king head of the church because, listen, Parliament is no more than a parish council. There I've heard is, politicians say that more recently. Uh, it is no more than a parish council, and England is only a part of a greater whole, and the part cannot separate itself from the whole, and the part cannot legislate for the whole. And England is subject in Christian terms to the gentle, general council of the church, which can only be summoned by a pope, ergo. Is These it, arguments are absolutely alike. They are the precisely the same arguments that we're having now. And more again, like the people who argue for remain, disapproves English history. It's an absolutely common strike. And you then see a rival block of opinions that develop. Um, there's Thomas Eliot's the book of, I mean, I've written extensively about this. There's Thomas Eliot's, there's, there's, there's Thomas, uh, Thomas Eliot's book of the governor. Uh, there is Thomas Smith's Daily Publica and Glorum. And what they all have in common is they draw on the tradition of Romanitas, of the Roman world, to against St. Augustine. You see, the key figure in all of this, you said I could talk, big, big ideas, absolutely. And the key figure in all of this is St. Augustine. St. Augustine's city of God is this complete attack on the Roman idea that the state can be just. And the history and the history and the ancestral worship uh, of, 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 of the Roman Republic produces a just society. He says Rome was a fundamentally corrupt and unjust society, and the only just society can be the city of God, the Christian church. Moore takes exactly that position. It's a revolutionary idea. It's a revolutionary idea, ex uh, 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 which was in the early 16th century. But then there is this countervailing English tradition, which of course draws enormous strength a, from what Henry did with the break with Rome, but also because everybody in the early 16th century is going back to the Roman past, and you apply that to England. And the developing notion of the English constitution, as it's particularly clearly set out uh, in, in, in especially um, uh, Thomas Smith's De Republica Anglorum, which was the English, he uses the title the English Republic. And this is written in 1568 to 69. Uh, and what he's saying there is, he's saying that England is fundamentally ruled in the same way as Rome. That we have um, uh, a senate, uh, we have um, a, the, the, the equivalent of a people, um, and that we have um, a, a monarch. Uh, and that this corresponds very, very closely with the structures of ancient Rome. Question. If people at that stage are beginning to understand and rediscover the arrangements of the Roman Republic. Why, when we have our revolution upheaval in 1688, don't we do what the Americans do a century later when they have their revolution? Why don't we build a Senate on the banks of the Thames? Why don't we build a capital like they've got on the banks of the Potomac? 
why why do we just settle for importing a, a, a Dutch monarch? Why, why don't we get the whole hog? It's called legitimacy. The Americans do what they did really pretty reluctantly. And the, uh, if you actually look at the American Constitution, it is the lightest possible editing of the 18th century Constitution. It's All the American states had constitutions modelled on England. They had two houses, they had a governor who stood in for the king. They had the same rituals. And they, uh, the same law, the same attitude to property. So it's a very light edition. So the enlightenment element of America is really quite slight. But there's one really interesting key. Look at what the appearance of the parliamentary building is. If you want to be a republic, with a neoclassical constitution, you build a great dome thing with lots and lots of classical columns. If you want to emphasize, if you want to emphasize like the English or like the Hungarians or like the Canadians or like the Australians, the you build Gothic. You, you, you build a Gothic building because you're saying our freedoms are not the product of reason, they're the product of history. This is why the Human Rights Act has been so catastrophic, because it's imported a French revolutionary enlightened, and enlightened, by the way, in my view, is a dirty word. As Burke it's called uber-rationalism. Uber-rationalism. That's exactly what Burke demonstrated it was. It imports that idea against something much more deep-rooted and serious, which is why, to come round to answer your question, why didn't we get rid of the monarchy in the middle of the 17th century? The answer is very simple. We did. We had a much more thorough revolution than the French. We not only cut the king's head off, we tried to abolish the word king from the language. We were much more aggressive in destroying the royal... Just no, it's really... Let me finish this. We were much more aggressive in destroying the royal treasures than the French ever were, because by the 18th century, we'd already got an idea of museology, that things could be important, not because of their political significance, but because of their historical significance. Why did we go back? Because England was ungovernable otherwise. The only way Cromwell, once Cromwell had abolished the king, and once he'd abolished Parliament, and both the House of Commons and the House of Lords, the only thing that held England down was an army. It was brutal military rule. The most brutal, horrible government that England, Scotland and Ireland, because he conquers the lot at the point of the sword, have ever experienced. But it couldn't continue. At the end, Cromwell is, has to become a pseudo-king. He's to become a Lord Protector uh, with royal honours. Uh, he has a pseudo-parliament, except you can never establish a franchise for it. You've got no legitimacy for it. He has pseudo-judges. He's got pseudo-peers. You know what's the most interesting fact about him, Douglas? He is buried with full royal honours. Cromwell never accepts the crown, but he is buried with the imperial crown, the scepter, um, um, an orb, um, a purple robe. He has a full-scale royal funeral with the extraordinary palaver. The point about revolution that, is it's holding up. The, of course you'd expect it. Wouldn't you? <laughs> um, and in other words, by, by, by 1659, there's only a single question. Is there going to be a monarchy in the House of Cromwell? And if Richard had been more competent there, would have been, or is there going to be a... Yes, it's an son. Well, he was a nice man. 
Um, you can't knock out of politics, clearly. You can't, you can't <laughs> have nice people. You know as well as I do. Uh, the idea of a nice political leader, it's an utter... It's one of the paradoxes of, of, diplo of, of diplomacy, of democracy. We want nice... Completely I, I, I read someone absurd. recently saying that Churchill might have been arrogant and obnoxious. Yep, that's why. Yeah, well, <laughs> yes, I mean, you take on you take on Hitler and Europe. You, know, yeah. you could take on your own party. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But this is fascinating because it explains not only why the sort of the architecture of our political system. I mean, literally, the House of Commons, was the literal physical architecture, is so different from America with its replication of the the, the Roman. Um, Capital. Yeah, yeah. But it also, what you've just said, sheds light on why this idea of of, of a legal tradition of of of, of judges accreted, accreted is incompatible with our our, our history. Totally. Um, the, 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 uh, what we saw in the Supreme Court is an absolute clash of two notions of law. The judges, and, and it's truly astonishing, and I've been amazed that the rest of the legal profession has largely remained silent. Um, the judges did not cite a single relevant precedent in the judgment of the Supreme Court. Uh, they cited, of course, what they did. Uh, I know what they're like. I used to mark people like that when I was at Cambridge. They are glib to ones who think they're firsts. And they cited, you know, the first lady here. You know, going back to... The one with uh, the spider. Uh, the one with the spider and the kind of vicious little face. Um, however... Um, she began by citing the precedent of, of Sir Edward Cook, uh, Lord Chief Justice Cook, um, in, in 1611 um, about uh, in the case of proclamations about the fact that all, uh, uh, all um, uh, acts of the prerogative are subject to law. Yeah, but he's talking about acts of the prerogative not in terms of high policy, he's talking about them when they impinge on the subject. It's completely irrelevant. But do you know what? In the, in the infinitely proper judgment of the High Court, which remember, the people who were overruled in the judgment of the Supreme Court were, let's list them, the Lord Chief Justice, the Master of the Rolls, that's the Head of Chancery, and the President of the Queen's Bench Division, the three most senior practicing judges in England. And if you read their judgment, it's a proper legal judgment. Mm. It looks at precedent. It weighs carefully whether there is a separate legal and a separate um, political sphere, and it comes up with all the proper answers. Mm. The judgment of the Supreme Court never replied to any of that. It, it's almost like saying it is... Because we it, say it is. It is because we say it is. But you see, what they're doing is, they are doing the opposite of English common law. Uh, they are applying, this is why, as I said, the judgment is so revolutionary and so dangerous. It is applying a series of abstract principles. And, but the most fundamental, so I think the judgment, right, let's get it really clear. It is wrong in law. And I know, and I've talked to a lot of serious lawyers. They are astonished by it. It is wrong in law. But the other thing that makes it de doubly deplorable, it is wrong in fact. Article 55, paragraph 55 of their judgment, purports to offer a description of parliamentary sovereignty. It lays the claim that uh, MPs are directly elected, that they carry the voice of the electorate, and that the government is answerable to them. Do you know what it does? It ignores parties. It ignores manifestos. It ignores the absolutely demonstrable fact that no MP and you know, well, you've actually an interesting exception, that no MP actually, if they stand alone, 
against their original party wins the seat. Um, and you were very, very rare in doing that. Um, and in other words, it is, it is a politically illiterate picture. They also get the name of the Conservative Party chief whip wrong, which But you go on like this. But I mean, for me, the thing that's so deadly dangerous is they misunderstand parliamentary sovereignty. And do you know what they're turning? They are turning that House of Commons into a self-perpetuating oligarchy. That's what they're turning it into. Um, and I think that the, de the dangers are simply infinite. But we would then compound the danger if we said the solution to this is to have American confirmation hearings and reinforce, entrench this idea. Right. I think there are now three possible lines of development from where we are now. The most likely one is that our parliament turns into something like the Italian parliament, in which you never... Never help us. You, ne you never ever have a majority party. Uh, in other words, no party manifesto is worth the papers written on because all governments are formed by backstairs negotiation. They last for a year and, and they last for years. And, and moreover, we would do it much less well than the Italians because as the Italians have just shown this year, they have a president who is capable of acting as an arbiter. Now, I'm going to commit heresy. That is the proper role of the monarch. It's a role that is carried out in Spain by Juan Carlos. It's the role that's carried out in the Netherlands, in Denmark, by Thailand, and so on. Thailand is rather different. Um, uh, 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 thank God our monarch is not a sacerdotal prisoner. But Henry VIII wanted it, but thank God didn't get it. Um, uh, the, the, so, um, uh, but, but our monarch has refused to do that. And that means. A, I don't think there's much point in having a monarchy apart from the fact it's nice and ceremonial and makes me feel comfortable as a historian and a bit expensive for that. Uh, but it, it also means we've got no political arbitrator because, of course, the speaker, as, who might have it, a, a, occupied that role by his blatant partisanship, hasn't. So we might go down that route, which is, and we would, at that point, we will get proportional representation, and our parliament will be the kind of quarrelsome, contemptible object that the Italian parliament is. I think that's the most likely development. The second possibility is that you have, um, uh, and it's very unlikely in the present circumstances, in the next election, if we're ever allowed to have one, of course, as Parliament has made itself effectively self-perpetuating, um, uh, if we're ever allowed to have one, suppose by miracle one party emerges with a clear majority. If they had any sense, they would then pass a series of pacts that would declare that every decision that Speaker Burko had made was repealed, they would repeal, they would abolish the Supreme Court, and they would abolish the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. Yes. And at which point you would restore the old functioning constitution. And I would also do something about judicial review, actually. And, and I would agree with you about judicial review, uh, as a spectator was saying today. You would have to have a parliamentary statute that limited judicial like review. Because ju judicial review is preposterous. I mean, nobody, as we saw with Gina Miller, nobody objects to a decision, the method by which a decision is reached, unless the object of the decision has been reached. So it is all, the pretense that it is just dealing with procedure is always false. And one final point, the, the other, the, so one outcome is a European style, another one, the best, would be a return to the traditional British style. The third, and it's one that I've always thought about, if the judges want to continue to have the role that they do, and they clearly love the idea that 
those preening people absolutely adore the idea, if Parliament wants to decide that it's separate from the government. Because remember, the reason that our Parliament has worked is that there is no separation of powers. There is no fundamental distinction between the government and the Parliament. You know this. At least 100 MPs are part of the government, and they are the most intelligent, the most forceful, the most directed, the most purposeful. And the Parliament works because it's directed by the government. And when the Parliament isn't directed by the government, as in the last three years, mm. you have chaos. Mm. And, and you can agree on what not to do. Nobody can agree, actually, on what to do. Yeah. But the other possible outcome is if you want to have a separation of powers, so you've got, which the judges seem to want us to do, uh, so you have a distinct executive, you have a distinct legislature, and you have a distinct judiciary. The only way you could make that work, and this is really incendiary, is by a directly elected prime minister. And then you, in other words, that we go down the American route. The Americans confronted, we were talking about the American Revolution, the Americans confronted this choice um, in, uh, in, in their extraordinary meetings in Philadelphia, uh, and particularly if you read, if you're familiar with the Federalist Papers, yes. they're astonishing. They debate all of these questions about the difficulties of democracy, what forms of limitations you need on democracy, all of that kind of thing. They're all discussed there. And we, I think that in many ways I would prefer the outcome of, okay, let the judges play their games. Let a Burko-style parliament emerge, but then let us have a properly, directly elected prime minister. This, this bothers me. I mean, no one's more... Well, I've been, throughout my time in politics, fiercely against a number of Tory parties and prime ministers. Goodness knows, I think Osborne and May and uh, a whole bunch of them have their inadequacies. I don't think Mr Osborne was prime minister. Well, Cameron. Virtually, was Cameron. He was what passed for Cameron's brain. In my fevered imagination, yeah. they often blended into one. Yeah, yeah. But I, even however critical I am of British prime ministers, I look with horror at an electoral system like America where every generation you produce a Richard Nixon or a Lyndon Johnson. And I... I, I I dislike the idea of um, a, a sort of Peronist Prime Minister. And I think Parliament is a great filtration mechanism. It, it allows a lot of dunderheads to rise to the top, but it also it's keeps It's not up. showing itself very distinguished at the moment, is it? I mean, this filter seems to me to be allowing, and I think, I mean, if you look at the current cabinet, I would say it's 99% uh, dross, isn't it? Oh, and if you look, and if, yeah, but, sorry, but then, but then, if you look at the opposition benches, they're one hundred percent trust. So, in other words, the, the filter mechanism isn't working. And you see, I think there's something else which is really important. But it's the if intake we, into the pump that's wrong. Well, of course it is, but that's a, that's not readily solvable. Um, the key point is, if you have a gen, if you have a prime minister who's subject to general election, we would never have to fear a Corbyn. A Corbyn, you look at his ratings; he would never ever become. Prime Minister. That's true. And, but at the moment to become Prime Minister, you become the leader of a party, you seize control of the party machinery, that's right. the pendulum swings your way, bingo. Well, that is if you've got a majority. Yeah. If you don't, then that mechanism doesn't work. You see, what is really striking is our parliamentary machine, this again, the judges were just, I'm sorry, I hate to say this, they are pig ignorant. Um, our parliamentary system underwent a series of violent adaptations in the 19th century to accommodate it to democracy. You know, mm -hmm. Up to the middle of the 19th century, parliament was really an immensely effective 
selected. It was just what you described. It was a selection machine by which you filtered a highly talented, educated, driven, ambitious aristocracy, modelling themselves on Roman and ambition for world conquest, and of course doing the most shameful financial deals and everything else uh, as, 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 as they were doing it. And then, first hesitantly with the 1832 Reform Act, and then much more rapidly after the 1867 Act, which in which a Conservative Prime Minister, just please, gives the vote to the working man. Between that and the uh, uh, 1884 Act, which gives, gives the vote to virtually every man, you get a different kind of parliament emerging in which MPs are subject to the whip MPs are subject to party discipline. You create manifestos. The political parties become fixed. And at the same time, you get the development of Erskine May. And the whole point of Erskine May is to bind the parliament to an agenda set by the government. You're, you're actually right. After 1884, you start to get this whip system. You no, it's before. Well, it's in 1884 where you get the creation of the first part, the, 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 the one MP system. You, you, the year they give the working man the vote, in 1884 is the year they adopt an electoral system where you get rid of multi-member seats. Oh yeah, I know that. So but but, but so the, the, the development of the machinery in Parliament is earlier. Erskine May embraces the 1870s and the 1880s. I think Iolanthe, the wonderful Gilbert and Sullivan satire, is 1882. And you remember Private Willis's song, and every boy and every girl that's born into the world of life is either a little liberal or else a little conservative. And you know, MPs vote just as their whips tell them to. But the thought of, lo of a lot of dull MPs MPs in close proximity or thinking for themselves is what no man can bear with equanimity. He's in other words, it, it's parodying a system which is already there. And what we forget is the system of whipping, the fact, bluntly, that most backbenchers have got no point. This desperate attempt at pretending backbenchers have something to do. They don't. But the whole attempt at professionalisation of being an MP uh, you know, is, heaven, it, forbid. It, it, heaven forbid it produces, you know, Jared, whatever he's called, Jared O'Mara um, from, 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 from Sheffield Hallow. Um, uh, it, it is absolutely disastrous. The, the, the whipping system is the guarantee of democracy. The parliament's control, uh, the control of the parliamentary agenda by the government is the guarantee of parliamentary democracy. And what we've seen deliberately by Burko and deliberately as a consequence of May's loss of her majority is the destruction of all of this. I think Burko's behaviour and the is Supreme Court... I don't think many of these institutions are going to be able to... That's what I said. This is what I said. If, if you move towards this, let's call it the... the, the the, the Starkey plan to get us out of this yeah, institutional yeah, uh, Americanisation. Our natural role, our natural behaviour is always to catch up with America. But you think we should be I think I do. So you have a directly elected Prime Minister right, right. Who, can then about, choose, who can then choose his ministers from outside Parliament. How about you have an upper house where people from each county yes, are elected? Yes, something like that would yeah. make... Or you could do the other thing if the United Kingdom survives, which I think is unlikely, but I would hope it would. You would then have a fed, It would then become a federal house. Okay. Like the Bundesrat in general. Uh, or, or, or like the American Senate. The American Senate is a federal house. Yeah. The, the Supreme Court is barely mentioned in the Constitution, and its role is not fully worked out. But it's out. Jay Marshall. Uh, it is, there is the struggle immediately afterwards. The, you know which pits, Jefferson uh, against Madison and all the rest of it. Um, and I think I would make this point. If you have this myth of the... Right, again, let's go back a stage further. Why do you have this absurd notion of the separation of power? 
it arises, all bad ideas come from France. France is the invariable <laughs> source of bad, simple ideas. And it's this man called Montesquieu de l'Esprit des Lois, of the Spirit of the Law. What an inane title. Um, uh, and you can tell Montesquieu is inane. He argues fundamentally laws are the result of climate. Oh, um, uh, 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 bad the, history again. Uh, the, 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 other, the other thing that he does, he, uh, he, he spends two years in it. Uh, um, and he uh, comes up with the basis of the time that he spent, uh, spent here, that the key to the success of English government, which enormously admires in comparison with the failed absolute, failing absolutism of France, he claims is that there's a separation of powers, separation of the judicial power, the executive power, and the legislative power. Well, it now transpires, I've been to work on this, you know, it's really fascinating doing serious historical research. It transpires that uh, Montesquieu had virtually no spoken English, because of course the English elite in the middle years of the 17th, 18th century is completely Francophone, because they all speak, they all speak French. Um, uh, secondly, um, he never observes the goings-on in Parliament. Uh, thirdly, uh, when you look at the notes he took, they're astonishingly stupid. They're filled with gossip, tittle-tattle, misspelled names. Really, he's sitting in a coffee house somewhere making it up. No, it's much more exciting than that. He lifts the whole concept from an opposition Tory pamphlet by that absolutely deplorable figure, Bolingbroke. Um, and uh, Bolingbroke... Oh, no, Bolingbroke is very easy to describe him. He's a kind of uber Boris Johnson. Um, he's, he is a libertine, and he is extravagant, he is lies, you know, everything. And he presents a parody of the English Constitution. So Montesquieu is based on a parody of England. Because, of course, we were saying just now, there is, never has been a historic separation between Parliament and the government. Ever since the Tudor period, going back to the Tudors, the Commons has been dominated by members of the Council. This is true under Elizabeth. The councillors like, like Cecil before he becomes a peer and all the rest of them, they sit in Parliament and they shape Parliament. And it, the breakdown, it's this exceptional breakdown of the 17th century, which has been taken to be typical. But remember, what happens the moment you restore good, effective government in England in 1688-89, the government takes over Parliament again, but it's a different relationship. But I would say there's one profound difference pre-1980. If you are a Minister of the Crown, yes, you might sit in Parliament, yes, you might control Parliament, yes, you might be steering Parliament rather than Parliament steering you. But in order to hold that office in the first place, you had to do something that since 1918 no minister of the Crown has had to do. You had to have a confirmation oh, of your your decisions. Uh, uh, you uh, had to it. resign. But you had to resign. Churchill was a victim of this. You had to resign. Uh, and, and, uh, and this is why I resigned when I changed parties. I thought for the I mean, there was always the notion that serving the Crown somehow corrupted you as an MP. But it rapidly, it, it became essentially ritual, and it became a ritual. Changing parties is a completely different matter. And I think you know, the disgrace of so many of the Remainers is not only have they changed parties, but they behaved and spoken so shockingly about it. I think you know, the sainted Sarah Wollaston, do you remember how she described ceasing to be a Tory? Like casting off a dirty raincoat. And I 
casting off. That's how she described the people who elected her. That's how she described the party workers. That's how she described her colleagues, like a dirty rake. Beautiful. The, the, the mentality of that. You would have thought she would welcome the chance to wash them off with a fresh head. <laughs> Precisely. And she didn't dare to confront her constituents. But you know, that... Anyway, that's a separate issue, but but I, I really do, but a very very important one. But I do think that the until we understand how our parliament has worked and why it's been so effective, it is because it's been a managed parliament. In other words, its natural role is not opposition. That's why we have a leader of the opposition. The natural role of parliament is to have a governing party that, as it were, dominates the assembly, is subject to challenge. And if, as in 1939, 1940, um, uh, it, it is seen to step out of line, you will get realignments within the House and the Prime Minister will be voted down or will be compelled to resign. But, but the, if you do not have a parliamentary assembly that has got that kind of leadership from within, it fails. And it's not just the old failures, it's not just the failure of the Estates General, it is very recent failures. Remember, the reason that we have the Fifth Republic, the reason we have that government by decree, why we have Macron, why we have a plebiscitary presidency, is that the Fourth Republic had a parliament which looks just like our parliament now. And, Bloom and all that. And, and it became corrupt, um, it could never establish a serious government, it collapsed before Germany, it could not actually put itself together and afterwards, and it was, I'm sorry, I'm really going to say this again, it was abolished. France is not a parliamentary system. Parliament is merely decorative. The purpose of the Prime Minister in France is to act as a tissue to be thrown away when anything goes wrong with the prime with with the presidential policy. Mm. That's the risk. So you've got his elected king, the president. Yeah. He appoints powerful civil servants and technocrats. Yeah. And anyone else you elect is basically It's just a joke. Yeah. It's just a joke. And this is the and again this is this is and this is how this is how the EU works, of yeah. course. The problem is that the EU is modelled catastrophically because we weren't there from the beginning. It is modelled on Napoleonic France. Mm. People pathetically talk uh, about the uh, uh, about the EU Commission as a civil mm. service. My God, what an absurd idea! They are bureau bureaucrats. They're the equivalent of the ministre of the. French Ancien Regime. They're chosen as technocratic experts and they generate law. And Parliament, you know, waves a gentle, benedic gentle benediction over it when it's allowed to. Now, um, I, I normally talk about current affairs on, on this show, but we've talked a great deal about history. But actually, the more we've talked about history, the more I've realised that you can't... There's really, no separation. There's no separation. And this brought me on to the sort of final thing I wanted to talk about, which is the extent to which our understanding and our narrative of the past actually determines how we frame current affairs and the narrative of the present. I, I look at the rise of the so-called new left, and it, I've heard all sorts of explanations as to why in Britain Jeremy Corbyn's popular, why in America you get Sanders and AOC and this... Revival Elizabeth Warren, yeah. these bizarre hardcore hard socialists. And I've heard technological explanations for it, which are unconvincing. I've heard people say that it's to do with the decline of um, or the corruption of social science teaching in, in universities. I think that all these are elements. But I wonder if it's to do with popular history 
the popular history books of people like Jared Diamond, Gun, Germs and Steel, um, the popular history of Eric Hobsbawm, Age of Imperialism, Age of Age of Age Revolution. Of yes. yeah. um, if you create a narrative that basically says Western countries ascended because they were better at exploiting their neighbours and there was something essentially extortative about Wicked. the rise Wicked. And you miss out entirely on the story of free exchange being the driver of human progress. You miss out entirely on the idea that there is something about Western culture that became superior to other cultures because it was better able to foster not only economic growth, but innovation, new ideas, invention, science, all the rest of it. And I, I wonder if we're, we're now dealing with the implications of this. The other day I heard the Labour Party say that it was going to insist upon Britain paying colonial reparations. Um, uh, of course, they weren't, weren't interested To whom? In, to Australia? Well, what about the Danes paying no, for no, what no, they did no, to my no, ancestors? No, no, no. But do, where do we pay them? Correct. Um, do, do we just decide the empire was black Africa and India? But it's so bad. It, but it's just one consequence of, of bad history. I think an even more fundamental consequence and a really profoundly bad consequence of this bad popular history is that there are now hundreds of thousands of people in this country who genuinely believe that there is nothing exceptional about not just England or Britain, but, but about the West. And this is, I think, the root cause of so much of, of, of our political malaise. We, we, we can't see what is special. And because we can't see it, we can't preserve it. And we therefore assume that all cultures and all people are pretty much interchangeable. And we get no, 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 we don't. Oh, no, 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 no. We assume that being white is bad. We assume that being white is at the bottom of the pile, and that black, brown, yellow, um, uh, party-coloured is, is, is by definition superior. You've got hierarchy of, uh, uh, you've got hierarchy of victimhood. Is this, I mean, is this you, you replace, idea of the you replace, you, 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 replace, you replace victimhood, uh, as it were, you replace success with victimhood. Um, uh, it was an absolute inversion of things. I mean, I think there are all sorts of elements here. Um, I think that um, there is, as you said, there is very bad history. There is the history that sees change as necessarily revolutionary, that what you have to do is to tear down old structures. Uh, that's the classic Hobbesport position. Whereas, in fact, it is perfectly clear, or indeed, how a lot of English history is taught, the importance of the Civil War, the enormous fuss that's being made about Peterloo now. Peterloo made absolutely bugger all difference. It was the long, slow campaign of the 1530s. And do you know what's peculiar about in England? They're not campaigning, not even Peterloo is campaigning for revolutionary change. They're not like the French mob in 1789. They're not saying, you know, Abba, Abba, down the king, tear down. They're saying we want a place in Parliament. They are saying we want we not that we want to tear the structure down. We want to join in. And this, of course, is the catastrophic thing at the moment. For the first time, Parliament. For the first time since 1928, Parliament is refusing to listen to the people. It's you know it is an utter catastrophe. So there is there is a, a false tradition of revolution. Uh, whereas in England, you know, change is accretive. The, the, reason, the, the, to get the, way, the, the reason why we are successful mm -hmm. is not that we've not had a revolution. It's, it's, it's not that we've had a revolution. It's precisely that we've avoided revolution. It's that change is accretive. Um, uh, and, but we can then go on. There are whole sorts of false doctrines. And so many very important things are founded on 
false doctrine. Um, let's look at another absolutely key area of false doctrine, the internet. The internet is founded on this wonderful Tim Berners-Lee notion that you know human beings are naturally good and you just give us absolute freedom and some wonderful, gorgeous, brimming creativity. And in fact, you know, a lot of shit-headed trolls spew their vileness. And because, but you know what this is? This is going back to an absolutely fundamental position of political thought. The internet has recreated the 17th and 18th century concept of the state of nature. Hobbes. There are two different views of the state of nature. There is the view of Hobbes, which is if you put a lot of people together and you have no structure of law and no structure of power, you have the wonderful war of all against all. And that wonderful phrase, what is the state of nature? It is life there is nasty brutish and short. And one of my left-wing colleagues at Cambridge was known as nasty, brutish and short. And anyway, he, had, you know, he had chip butties on his shirt. Well, I mean, the dark uh, web is uh, a pretty yeah, nasty place. Uh, absolutely. Which it is. But the other view, of course, of the state of nature is Rousseau. That man is naturally perfect. And that the only thing that stops us being perfect is human society. Another bad the, French idea. And, and the, another mad French idea. And the wickedness of culture and the wickedness of law and the wickedness of civilization. The web has proved that Hobbes was right and that Rousseau was wrong. And you see, again, it's the point I was going back to right at the beginning when I, when I, when, 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 when I cited Gates. Ideas really do rule. Mm. And bad ideas, I'm afraid, are on the whole more effective than good ones. Do you think so? I do. You don't think I, bad I, ideas? I, no, no, I don't believe that at all. I, I, I think this notion that truth will act is utterly silly. The evidence of human beings is they have a marked preference for bad ideas. I said, just, just one minute, and there's a particular reason why we're prone to bad ideas at the moment, which I think underlies everything we've been talking about, the death of religion. And you will remember G.K. Chesterton's wonderful phrase, when you stop believing in God, you don't just stop believing in God, you believe in anything. You don't believe in nothing, stop, you know, look at Dawkins, you don't just stop believing in God, you don't believe in nothing, you believe in anything. The reason at the moment why we have Extinction Rebellion. Why we have the Extinction Rebellion, why you have people going down on their knees in front of this idiotic, you know, whatever you know, psychotic girl with the pigtails. It's like a medieval child saint. Millennium. The prostrate exactly, it's like Diana. The prostration of people as intelligent as Michael Gove before that genuinely makes you want to puke. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the whole the whole doctrine of climate change, uh, and I'm afraid David Attenborough, is fundamentally that human beings are wicked, that out there there is a perfect beautiful it's a cult. That there's a perfect, beautiful world that, that again that needs to be restored to our That's right. Jeremy Corbyn is Jesus Christ. You know, JC. You know, Jeremy, Jeremy. And, and we can be redeemed if and we. And we can be redeemed. And and also, of course, what are the, what again? Um, the guilt of being, you know, me, even more than you, because I'm even older. I'm even more privileged. I'm probably richer. You know, pale male, stale. Um, you have a guilt. This is original sin. The concept of original sin is now visited on the West, and it has got to be redeemed by what? By stripping off our garments, by by you know putting ashes on our head, by prostrating him. How funny! We always it's assume. It's not funny. It's I mean it is terrifying. It is, but we always I should say 
it what's peculiar, not funny, is funny that, peculiar, funny peculiar, not yeah. funny haha. Yeah. We we always assumed that modernity meant that we would put aside old superstition. On what you're saying is that actually it is we've found new ways of expressing infinitely more. I mean, Christianity is rational compared to all this stuff. And remember, the Christianity that was popular in England, apart from nonconformity, was one that emphasised reason. Maybe the beauty of Christianity is that if you seek some sort of redemption, you seek it for something bigger than just yourself. Like I was also mostly England wasn't ever terribly serious. I think about Christianity. But I would say the, 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 the key to the Church of England uh, is that it, um, uh, for most of its existence, it effectively worshipped the king. Uh, it was English Shinto. Uh, it was it was the nation worshiping the coronation uh, ceremony. Look, looking at the coronation ceremony, and you know it Quite wasn't right it wasn't until uh, my view is absolutely right. right. It wasn't until you had the disaster of Michael Ramsey that it rediscovered Christianity and led directly to Welby and his prostrating you know, that absurd sight of his prostrating himself at Amritsar. I mean, you think of the fuss again that's made at the Amritsar massacre. Yes, it's shocking, but compared with the massacres of the Mughal Empire in decline. Well, this is hundreds of thousands. I was and reading not... recently what some warlord did in Baghdad. I mean, yeah, but, I mean and <laughs> but also, they're not just killed, they're tortured to death in the most exquisite and horrible fashion. Um, um, so I, but I think this is, the, I think the death of religion is the real key to all of this. Uh, except that it's not the death of religion, it's the kind of displacement I mean, you look at the you look at the prominence of pure irrationality, the rise of horoscopes, the, the this because again I think it's it's that popular education has failed to such an extent. The world of science, the world of the web, and so on, appears as mysterious, you know, as the um, uh, as the fact that the Earth moved round the sun to a medieval peasant, mm -hmm. and because we fail. I mean, I, most of my life I was really a teacher, uh, and uh, I've always seen my television, my public appearances as forms of teaching, and I think we as a profession have failed comprehensively. If we are to put things right, and I don't think it's terrible, do you think? I think that we are showing, you know, there's been a lot of written for the last 50 years, 1500 years, about the decline of the West, but I do think we are seeing, what happens is, civilizations are usually not conquered, they commit suicide. The Romans certainly did. Exactly. And I mean, we are witnessing a new decline and fall. Do you think so? I am absolutely sure so. I don't want to end on a gloomy note, but... Well, okay, I can put a big smile <laughs> on Okay, I will reinterpret it for you. Well, yeah, uh, listeners, viewers, we want a little... Cheer up. Uh, it's not cheer so up. We want a little merriment. Uh, let us say that we are not quite in 440. Uh, the aqueducts have not yet been cut. Rome has not yet fallen. The Emperor Romul Rom no, Romulus Augustulus, uh, very good for Boris, still sits upon the throne. And we are two senatorial aristocrats, just contemplating the fact that for the moment, and provided we die quickly, we will continue to enjoy the hypercost, the Ganymede, the sweetened wine, and life. But you know what? It's not going to last long. But what if the internet comes along and suddenly allows people to inject new ideas 
Oh, he's filmed on the Vimey's. Well, I mean, what you're saying is, could could the internet revive? Uh, well, what you're saying is, I think again, a bit more specific. Could the internet provide an, a basis for a new Swiss republic, a new virtual Swiss republic, in which we could go to something like referenda um, as a way of conducting politics? Well, because, it seems, because it seems to me that clearly the sort of representative democracy we've got is very old-fashioned. I gently try to point out to people, do you know how long we've been electing MPs on exactly the same principle as we do now, with county seats and urban seats? 1884? Since the model parliament of the late 13th century. Okay. So that was that was represented yeah. when you needed representative government. You know, it is a terribly long way to come from where I was born in Kendall or whatever it is. Um, but you then have got to ask really fundamental questions: Is it needed anymore? But then I'm afraid your nice notion of the virtuous internet meets my unpleasant notion of the re real internet and the failure of public education. And the 19th century debates this endlessly. We were talking about the introduction uh, of the mass electorate in first 1867 and then 1884. The Victorian elite, particularly people like Matthew Arnold, who as well as a great poet, um, is, is also an, an inspector of schools. They are aware that democracy will not work without proper public education. And I'm afraid we did pretty well until the 1950s, and the signs are we've been doing extremely badly from the 1950s onwards, though with some you know, refreshing patches of, of recovery and whatever in big cities. But, but the... And again, it's not... It's, it's, I may be going too far, um, and let me turn it around another way. I think that... It's also the fact that we have had a politics of sustained dishonesty. Mm. I think that we've, and we see it now, we have politicians who will not talk in clear, honest language to people, who make actually no serious effort at communicating. Uh, from Blair onwards especially, mm. we have had the conduct of policy deliberately by manipulation. I mean, the rise of figures like Alistair Campbell uh, is monstrous. Um, they are government, it's government by lies. I mean, I don't know whether you're familiar uh, with, 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 with that marvellous definition of, of propaganda from F.M. Cornford, the great classicist and satirist of Cambridge, in which he talks about propaganda as that branch of, of the art of lying, that branch of the art of lying, which consists in almost deceiving your friends without quite deceiving your enemies. In a world of gathering gloom, um, politicians who have nothing of interest to say and failed public education, I hope that this show stands out as a beacon of light. Um, and I hope um, from this, you know, it may it may spark spark something slightly bigger. It's well, I mean, I think I mean I feel passionately. Uh, I I'm rather unusual. I travel around the country a lot. I addressed hundreds of people. I make it that I have a sometimes history, sometimes politics. I talk to them as a Churchill would have done for about an hour, and then I throw it open, and anybody can say anything. And I have no idea what the questions are, 
Uh, I've, no, I've, I've never had anything thrown at me yet, uh, the, the occasional expletive, um, uh, which we're perfectly happy to deal with. Uh, but until we recover yeah. that sense of debate and interchange, and also we've There's become... There's a huge appetite for that. There is, you see, what I feel. Uh, and, and again, the, 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 uh, the, the, there's also there's a desire for honesty, there's a desire yeah. for... But the, 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 the fraudcasters, like the BBC yeah. and Sky News, and I call them the fraudcasters for a reason, they... They introduce a totally bogus narrative. Um, they never sort of bogus formats. I mean, yeah. The fact you, the fact to talk about the judgment of the Supreme Court, Newsnight, they asked me would I go onto a panel. In other words, you've got six people all shouting at each other, and nobody says anything. I mean, you've actually got news formats, as you said, with constant interruption, uh, in which nobody is actually allowed to say anything without some presumptuous git like John Humphreys, who frankly knows nothing, um, uh, thinking that he can tell them what to say. And of course, what politicians have done in response, or to you know, the equally, equally foolish Jeremy, what politicians have done in response to that is develop the art of stonewalling. Mm. Whereas the really great interviewers, the Brian Walden, ask a question, and then sit back and listen to the answer, and then trip them up flat, if they, or Andrew Neil, if they try to fight. I'm certainly not up there with, with, with either of those two, but I, I, I hope I've given you lots and lots of time. Well, I, over I just overrid you when I felt it right. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on. And um, it's been really wonderful to have you. Thank you.